Let's open the Scriptures first to the prophecies of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, and then to the book of Job chapter 1, Isaiah 6 in the Pew Bible, page 726, 726. These readings are taken in connection with our text in Genesis 1, verse 1. The focus of the preaching this morning will be on the creation of heaven, the dwelling place of God. And so the vision in Isaiah and what we read in Job helps us to understand something of what uh, the reality of heaven is. Isaiah 6, then, the verses 1 through 7 In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. You understand this is a vision of heaven. Above Him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two He covered His face, and with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts." Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. We now turn to the book of Job, page 528. 528, book of Job, chapter 1. We'll begin at verse 6 and read through the end of the chapter. The first five verses introduce Job, and then we are introduced to a vision of what happens in heaven, and that's our interest this morning. Verse 6, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand." 
So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young people and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Please turn with me to Genesis chapter 1, where we're going to go back this morning just for this one time to something we couldn't deal with in any kind of depth when we dealt with the opening verses of Genesis. We're going to focus on the creation of heaven, verse 1, the first part. In the beginning, God created the heavens. That'll be our, our text this morning. In response to the preaching, we'll sing the Lord's praise, Psalm 103, which again reveals something about the splendor and the glory of heaven and those creatures who live there. Church of our Lord Jesus Christ, before we go further into Genesis 2, that's kind of where we're, we're at in this series, and before we go into the creation of both man and woman as found in Genesis 2, before we speak about God's planting of the Garden of Eden as home for man on the earth, I want to pause this morning and speak to you about God's creation of another home a home for Himself in heaven. We had to kind of skim over it when we started our little series. And then you might be surprised by the choice of text because our text this morning, it, it has so very few details. In the beginning, God created the heavens. I mean, what does that really tell us about heaven? And why is it important for us to pause and go back and know something about heaven. 
Well, it's important because before too long, we will be in Genesis 3, and there we're going to meet some creatures who were created to live in heaven, spiritual creatures called cherubim appear for the first time in Genesis 3. Those are special angels of God. In chapter 3, we'll also meet a dark spiritual creature who doesn't yet have a name in Genesis 3, but he's obviously a creature of great skill and seduction and who is full of sin, and he's got his origins in the heavenly realm. The Bible will later identify him as Satan or the devil. Heaven is God's dwelling place, God's home. And by the end of chapter 3, not only has heaven interacted with the earth, but heaven actually has collided with the earth in a certain way. There's tension and more. There's a rupture between heaven and earth. God starts out in chapter 1 blessing the earth and all the creatures of the earth with prosperity and with life. But by the end of chapter 3, God curses the earth and He punishes its creatures with hardship and death. And creatures whom God created to live in heaven start out in peaceful relations with man on the earth, but by the end of chapter 3, there is also enmity there, opposition, hatred even, a cursed satanic serpent and two cherubim along with a flaming sword keeping man away from the Garden of Eden, God's garden. So, you have to understand heaven is very much in the picture here in these early chapters. It's just in the background. But it's rather important. So we're going to, this morning, with the help of later Scripture, we're going to bring heaven into the foreground so we can better understand what's going on, better understand the good news of God's creation of heaven, His dwelling place. So I bring you this word of the Lord, God creates heaven as His home. We'll see the troubles of heaven, or sorry, the splendor of heaven, the troubles of heaven, and the future of heaven. Now maybe you're wondering whether our text even talks about God's dwelling place at all, for it speaks in the plural about heavens, God created the heavens. Doesn't that sound, doesn't that refer to the sky? And certainly elsewhere in Scripture, this very same word does mean the sky as we see it above us. Just a few verses down, verse 8 of chapter 1, the ESV translates this same word in the singular as heaven. And if you look at the footnote, a footnote will say it can also be read as sky. That's verse 8. So, it depends on the context how to understand this, this same word in Hebrew. By itself, the Hebrew word is a, a bit unusual. It's what we call a, a plural noun. It's always written in the plural, like in English we might say it always has an S on the end, but it doesn't always mean a plural. 
Sometimes it can be translated as a, a, single, a singular, other times as a plural. Sometimes it's heaven, other times it's heavens. Sometimes it's sky, other times it's skies. And in Scripture, we see this very same word used in three basic ways. It can refer to the sky, as I just mentioned. We have an example in Genesis 1, verse 20, and also verse 8. A second way is to refer to outer space. The heavens can refer to outer, outer space. We use it that way in English as well, the place where the sun, the moon, and the stars shine. Genesis 1, verse 14 uses it that way on day four. And the third way is to refer to the dwelling place of God in the singular as heaven. As we sang that in Psalm 11, the Lord is on His throne in heaven's palace. We'll sing it from Psalm 103, His holy throne the Lord in heaven has founded. From there He rules with sovereign power unbounded. This is most often how we tend to use the singular word heaven, meaning the home of God. Okay, you might say to yourself, well, that's, that word in Hebrew can mean those three things, but does it mean the dwelling place of God here? Didn't God, besides, always have a home? Didn't God always have a place of glory? How do we know that heaven was created at all? Well, for one thing, there's nothing in our text or in the whole chapter that limits the use of the word heaven to just sky or outer space. There's no indicator that it's only limited to those two. Second, while we know that God has no beginning and no end, the Bible never says that the dwelling place of God has no beginning or end. In fact, everything outside of God does have a definite beginning. God Himself is the only one who is from everlasting to everlasting. So the place called heaven and whatever exists there, the throne of God, the angels, and whatever else might be there must have been created at some point. In fact, that's exactly what the Bible tells us later in Nehemiah's book, chapter 9, verse 6. Nehemiah, in a prayer to God, says this, You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven. Here comes the heaven of heavens. That's a reference to His dwelling place. With all their host, the earth and all that is in that, in that, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. That's an unmistakable reference to the angelic host of heaven. They're worshiping God, and God is said to have created them all. Just like we saw in Isaiah 6, the host of heaven is worshiping God day and night. So we need to understand that, that heaven, as the home of God, has a beginning, and it was created just like the earth was created to be man's home. And heaven, heaven is a place of unimaginable glory and splendor, the likes of which we, we've never encountered here on the earth. Isaiah's vision shows us something of that. Isaiah 6 says, that he saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. I mean, that's, 
That's just unimaginable to, to think of how that would work. But so glorious is the king that the train of his robe, the, the, the length of his robe fills the temple. What we learn there is that in heaven there is a temple. There's a palace. There's a structure in which God is pleased to dwell. You know, when you see heaven pictured in the comic books or, on, or in the movies, then it's most often kind of pictured like a land of fluffy clouds. But whenever the Bible speaks of heaven, it's not pictured in terms of fluffy clouds. It's pictured in terms of a temple palace. It's pictured in terms of a throne and many angelic servants surrounding the throne. Just think of how the book of Revelation pictures it time and again. The throne on which God is sitting, the Lamb sits there too, surrounded by the elders and surrounded by living creatures and surrounded by angels. You might remember that the tabernacle and later Solomon's temple, they were built upon the specific instructions of God to be copies of the real thing in heaven above. They were like models or, or, or shadows of what God had in heaven. Now, of course, we understand from other parts of the Bible that, that God is so great, so magnanimous, that He is present everywhere. You can't contain God. We'll sing it from Psalm 139 this afternoon. We can't go anywhere in all of creation and not find God already there waiting for us. Solomon says it in his prayer when he dedicates the temple, Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you how much less this temple I'm building. So we understand that though the Lord is everywhere present, yet He chooses to make His presence known and felt in a very personal way, in a very powerful way, in the place called heaven. And so full of wonder and, and glory is the Lord that one of His angelic servants called the seraphim, whom the Lord made to attend him there in heaven. When that seraphim speaks, we read in Isaiah 6, he causes the foundation of the threshold of heaven's temple to shake, and the place filled with smoke just at the sound of his voice. We're meant to stand in awe of that. I mean, if this is just one of the angels' voices causing this kind of seen in heaven, what does that say about the king himself? Imagine if God spoke. The king who was being praised by that seraph and all the other seraphim day and night, the king who created all the angels, if the seraphim are that impressive, how much more the Lord? For that is indeed part of the splendor of heaven in these many inhabitants called angels. Angels, like humans, are created beings. They weren't there from eternity. Their natural home is heaven. Paul is explicit about their being uh, created beings. Colossians 1, for by Christ all things were created, says Paul, things in heaven and things on earth. Visible and invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, all things were created by Christ and for Christ. Well, we might ask, when, 
where the angels created them. Well, if we piece the information together from Scripture, very likely the angels were created along with heaven itself as God's very first act of creation on the very first day captured in the words of our text. In the beginning, God created the heavens. It would seem that heaven was created in a moment, whereas God chose to use six days to create the earth and all that is associated with the earth. And why is it likely to be the case that heaven was created at the first portion of day one? Because Genesis 1 goes on to speak only of the earth's creation. It doesn't mention any details about heaven, so that suggests that God's dwelling place was already in there. But also we can say a bit more based on Job. God, at a certain moment in the book of Job, questions Job, Job chapter 38. And he, he asks Job a number of rhetorical questions, and I'm reading from verses 4 and following. Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundations of the earth? So he takes it back to creation. Were, were, were you there, Job? No, you weren't there. On what was the earth's basis sunk, Job? Who laid its cornerstone? And then he comes to the, the reference to the angels, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? You weren't there, but the angels were there. Sons of God is a reference to the angels. They were on hand to witness God's laying the foundations of the earth. They were on hand to rejoice at God's wonderful deed. And so it seems likely that the angels were created at the beginning of day number one. Well, what kind of creatures are these angels? What do we know about them, really? We know they are spirit creatures. In other words, they do not have a physical body. They do not have flesh and blood like we do. Hebrews 1 says they are ministering spirits, so they are spirits. Normally they are invisible to the human eye, but it is possible for them to take human form. Think of the, the two young men, for example, that the women saw at the tomb of Jesus. That's a form they take, but by nature they are spirits. Yet they're not spirits like God is spirit, because God is unlimited in any way, shape, or form. His power is unlimited. The angels, we are told, they are limited. They're limited to being in one location at one time. They have to travel or move to get from one locale to another, like the angel who flew over to Isaiah with the tongs and the coal from the altar. He wasn't in more than one place at one time. Angels are said to have wings. We read about that in Isaiah 6. And they, they seem to fly in order to move around. And yet at other times we see angels pictured or, or presented without wings. So I think we have to admit there's a mystery at work there. We don't know exactly how those wings may function. Angels also have a great deal of strength, much more so than humans, but yet it's not unlimited strength like God has, for we read of angels engaging in warfare, for example, Daniel 10, and angels being resisted in that warfare and having a hard time of it. 
So these angels, they're, they're incredible beings who have direct contact with God, and, and they do their bidding. But angels are something different from humans and different from animals, again. Like humans, but unlike animals, angels have reason, they have intellect, they have ability to speak, they have ability to worship. Animals don't have those things. Yet, unlike humans, they are not sexual beings. They do not marry. They do not procreate. They do not reproduce. Mankind is different that way. Mankind, one male, one female, and out of that union comes the whole human race. So that humanity is a big family. Humanity is one organic whole, literally connected by blood. With angels, it's different. There's no blood connection. We don't even know if they have blood, if there's blood in spirit beings. We're not told that there would be, but angels are entirely different. They were created by God all in one time. Their entire number, which Scripture says is 10,000 times 10,000, which is basically a, a euphemism for saying it's too many for man to count. That number, whatever it is, God knows it, it's an unchangeable number. There's only so many angels. There, there's many, many of them, but there's only so many. And the angels were created with, with a, an order, a hierarchy. Scripture speaks of, the, of an archangel, even more than one archangel, 1 Thessalonians 4. Archangel, that means a ruler angel or the first angel among many. The angel Michael is likely one of these archangels. For he leads an army of angels in heavenly battle in Revelation 12. Now, we don't know all the, the details of this angelic order, but we, we know that there are an order of angels called cherubim. Those cherubim are always found in close proximity to God. They seem to be guardians of His throne room. They, they're guardians of His holiness. They guard the entrance to the way of the Garden of Eden where God could otherwise be met. And then above the cherubim, it seems they're a little bit higher in the order, is the seraphim. From Isaiah 6, we learn that the seraphim, their basic task is to, to lead the worship of heaven. They're singing the Lord's praises day and night, day and night, leading all to magnify the Lord. So the angels, the angels are great Creatures, they're, they're mighty beings. They're filled with splendor and honor. And yet, for all of that, they are lower than humans. I think we often don't realize that. We think, well, they, these, these beings are sinless, they're holy, they're mighty, they, they surely are above us. But Psalm 8 says, that mankind is made in the image of God, that same as Genesis 1, and made just a little lower than God, meaning the angels are lower than man. The angels actually are created by God to minister to us humans. Did you know that? Hebrews 1 verse 14 are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? In other words, the angels from heaven, they are commissioned by God to keep watch over us, 
to assist us wherever there might be need. Even the Lord Jesus speaks in this way when He warns His followers not to despise even the the smallest or most insignificant believer. He says, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of My Father who is in heaven. Their angels, plural. That means, beloved, you don't have just one guardian angel watching over you. You've got a whole host of guardian angels keeping an eye on you and on me. Not that God needs the angels to do that, but He is pleased to use these magnificent creatures as a way to make us feel more secure under God's kingship. The angels are around. Isn't that a wonderful thing to ponder? That these mighty angels, invisible to to everyone, nevertheless, they are they're here? They're, they're, they're among us? Wouldn't they be among us this morning? Wouldn't they be with us in our daily travels and in our houses? They're here sent by God to be helpers to us. It's good to think about heaven, to think that the splendor of heaven spills over to the earth that the inhabitants of heaven not only care about the earth and about us creatures of the earth, but the inhabitants of heaven, the angels, they are willing to fight for the earth. For we also know that the original joy and splendor of heaven sadly soon gave way to sorrow and trouble. And this is where that certain created angel later called Satan or the devil enters the picture. We have to admit up front that the Bible nowhere gives us clear, much less thorough, uh, thorough account of what happened in heaven or how exam- exactly a good angel became the evil one. It simply assumes this reality, and we have to kind of put the pieces together. But we should be cautious. We'll have many questions about how Satan came to be what he is, but we won't get the answers that we would want, not all of them. What we do know is that by the end of day six, God looked over all that He had made and declared it to be very good. So, there was clearly no sin, there was no evil anywhere in all of God's creation in heaven or on earth by the end of day six. Yet by Genesis 3, an evil spirit clearly is active inside of one one of God's good creatures. So that evil spirit had to come from somewhere, and he had to come about after mankind was created, after day six, somewhere between that point and our first parents' rebellion in the garden. That's about all we can say with precision. For Adam and Eve's rebellion in Genesis 3 was not the first rebellion. It was the second rebellion among God's creatures. The first one occurred in heaven, you see. And it had to have been led by one of God's good angels. And we need to be clear about that, that this creature called Satan is not some kind of independent being. Satan is not 
another God of sorts that somehow is on equal footing with the Creator and is like a, a, a basic rival to the Creator. No, that's, that's not how it is. A lot of people think that Satan is that mighty and powerful, like he's the, the evil force in the universe, much like God is the good force in the universe, and there's kind of an equality between them, and they really are duking it out over the course of history. Well, brothers and sisters, the Bible paints a totally different picture. There's no equality between Satan and God. Satan is down here. God is up here. Satan is a creature. God is the uncreated creator from everlasting to everlasting. There's only one God. And so this creature called Satan, he was originally, must have been, a good angel who at some point made a choice to rebel against his Creator. Now, we, get, we catch a glimpse of Satan in Job chapter 1, which we read together. Even though Satan, obviously long before that, had rebelled against God, he nevertheless shows up there and takes his place alongside of the sons of God. And as I mentioned earlier, that's an expression that, depending on the context, can refer to the angels, and here it certainly does. And these angels, they present themselves before the Lord. It's like God is, is calling them to give an account of their activities on the earth, and Satan comes. Satan is just a creature. He hates God. He fights against Christ and, and Christians, but he has no choice to but to submit to God's will. He just appears along with the other angelic beings. Isn't that encouraging in itself, beloved? Think, too, of how the Lord Jesus in His earthly ministry, whenever He encountered Satan or His demons, all Jesus needed to do was express His will. All He needed to do was give a command, and instantly they obeyed. The demons, they fled out of different people. When Jesus said to Satan after that third temptation, get away from me, Satan, he did. He left. So that puts Satan in a certain framework for us, right? You and I should certainly be aware of Satan. We should be wary of Satan. He is a deadly enemy, but we should never, ever be scared of Satan. God may give Satan power, as He did in Job's case, but it's always a limited power. It has to be granted by God. God remains in full control. And did you know that even after Satan did his worst to Job, God's power upheld Job. His faith remained intact. He did not curse God. In the end, beloved no matter what Satan does to God's people, Satan always, always, always loses because God will always be victorious. Well, if we think about those early days in heaven, what kind of, what kind of trouble erupted there? Again, we don't know the specifics, but from the New Testament, 2 Peter 2, we know that angels sinned, angels in the plural. Jude 
gives us a bit more in his letter. He says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, God has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. So the picture we get from Peter and Jude is that it wasn't just a single angel who sinned. It was a company of angels. It was a group of them, and quite a large number apparently, because in the Gospels we encounter many of these fallen angels, now called demons, one of whom, or at least a, a group of them are called a legion, meaning many thousands living in one man. And the picture we get in Revelation 12 is, is a whole host of uh, demons following Satan against Michael and his angels, and they do battle. So Satan is very clearly the captain of a large host of fallen angels. Now, you recall earlier we saw that the, the realm of angels is highly structured and organized with rulers and leaders and archangels and sub-rulers. So Satan must have been one of the higher rulers, maybe on par with Michael. And it seems that he and all the troops that he directed, they rebelled together against God. That's the picture we get. And what was the issue? Like, why would Satan and his followers rebel? I mean, you're in the presence of the Creator, this glorious, this awesome, this incredible to ponder and behold being called God, and, and then you're going to rebel? Like, what kind of insanity is that? What did they think? Well, most explainers point to this, that it was a matter of pride for the devil. We glean that from what Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, and he's actually writing there about uh, choosing elders from the flock, but he refers to Satan. Here's what he says. The, the, the person chosen to be an elder must not be a recent convert. Why? Or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Paul just writes that as if everybody would have understood the context. We kind of infer from that that being puffed up with conceit was the devil's sin, being filled with pride, considering yourself superior to others, thinking more of yourself than you really are, and wanting to be someone you're not, that's pride. That's the original sin of the angel we now know as Satan. And isn't that the original temptation too, beloved? that this Satan put before Eve and Adam? What did he say to Eve? And Adam was standing right beside Eve. What did he say? If you eat of this tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Man was a creature. Satan said, you'll be like God. You'll have this place up here. That's the sin that brought down the human race after that same sin earlier took down a host of angels. But you know, that's precisely the sin that the last Adam resisted, didn't he? 
Jesus Christ, the last Adam. He was the one who actually was God. He wasn't just a creature, but Philippians 2 says he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's what man was thinking in the garden. It was a thing to be grasped. No, he emptied himself of all his glory by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Satan didn't want to do anything like that. Adam and Eve didn't want to do anything like that, humbled themselves. But Jesus wanted to do exactly that, and He did. The head of the new human race, Jesus Christ, a human race being gathered in by faith, He shunned all pride. He shunned all arrogance. He embraced humility. He constantly said throughout His ministry, I have come to do the will of My Father. I've not come to do My will, the will of My Father. And that will was to say no to every temptation the devil threw at him, to resist every demonic attack launched at him, and to bring about the salvation of God's people, a people chosen out of the pit of their deserved condemnation, chosen by grace alone. Jesus was sent to save them. Satan is the opposite. He wanted to, to steal God's glory. He wanted to take by force God's throne. He wanted to rule as if he were the king. But Jesus, Son of God, gave up his glory, ministered on earth in sacrificial love unto death itself, and then he was appointed to the throne of God to rule now and forever as the true king. And that gospel message, that's the gospel message that comes out of heaven. It prepares us for the glorious future of heaven, the future of heaven and earth together. For let's ask ourselves a deeper question. Why is it really? Why is it that God created heaven? Like, why would He do that? In an earlier sermon, we considered why it is that God created the earth and soon realized that God created the earth to benefit man. God had no need to fulfill, you'll recall. He has no itch to scratch. There, there's nothing that's in God that's discontent in any way. So when He set about to create something, anything, that must be to benefit the creatures He's creating always, of course, bringing glory to Himself, but He's doing this creating work to benefit others. And so it must be with the creation of heaven. God doesn't need a temple to dwell in, even a heavenly one. God doesn't need a palace. God doesn't even need angels or living creatures. God doesn't need an actual place in which to live, does He? I mean, for all eternity... There was no such place as heaven. So why did God make heaven in the beginning? Why go through the effort of building Himself a home? So that He could invite you and me into it. God created a home for Himself in which He 
became accessible to his creatures, to angels, yes, but also to humans. Don't we see his intention in that with the building of the tabernacle and the temple, which we saw in recent sermons, the tabernacle temple, that's like a little piece of heaven come down to earth, God dwelling on the earth. People could access the presence of God through the priesthood. They could, they could come close to God. That's God's greater goal, to bring His people into close proximity to Himself, to live together with man, male and female, in perfect harmony. Think again about Jesus. Where did Jesus go after 40 days following His resurrection from the dead? Jesus, who is the last Adam, still fully a human being, true man and true God, this Jesus went up into heaven as a man to take His place on the throne. And we who belong to Jesus, we are with Him in heaven in principle. He's our representative. If He's there, we're there. We will follow physically, but in principle we're already there. This Jesus, our head, is king over all of heaven and earth, over all created things. And when he comes back, what is this great king going to do? He and his father, they're going to bring heaven, the glories of heaven. They're going to take all of that kingdom of heaven and they're going to bring it down to earth. And our God will live with us in the temple of this creation a creation that will be then cleansed from sin and made fresh and new, a worthy home for God, for His angels, and for all God's people. Heaven and earth come together, you see. That's the future of heaven and of earth. It's the future for you and me and all God's people. A pure gift of love and grace. So don't let this present world get you down, beloved. There's all kinds of sadness in this world, all kinds of frustrations, all kinds of pain and misery. But don't let it get you down. This world is fading. This world will be, the, the, this, this life we live, it will one day be a memory. But the coming union of heaven and earth, that is a miracle and a wonder and a joy that angels and humans look forward to eagerly. Hang on to that hope. It's coming. Hang on to that hope by doing what the angels themselves do continually. Sing. Sing your heart out for love of your King. Amen. Mm -hmm.